Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 217. My name is Arvind Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu Malkeno, our Father, our King, Lord, as we count our way from Passover to Pentecost, which represents basically the connection from the season of being set free by the blood of Yeshua to the season of being filled by the Spirit of Yeshua, we anticipate what is around the corner. We thank you that you are drawing us into this relationship with you via the um, mechanism of the festivals and the special holy days as we're counting the Omer and reminding ourselves that you've given these to us for our benefit, even though the finished work on the cross that Messiah accomplished for us isn't, is just that. It's a finished work. There's nothing we can do to add to it. Nevertheless, because of the ongoing path of sanctification and the way that you have commanded us to continue to press in to matters of holiness, well, then we regard this journey of holiness as um, something that um, is very, very beneficial and something that is going to um, bless us in so many ways. So thank you for this opportunity uh, that is afforded to us as a body, as individuals. Continue to strengthen us along this journey and help us to see Messiah at every turn, for indeed he is the preeminent one. He is the reason why we do the things that we do, why we walk out the Bible the way we do, why we allow um, ourselves to be immersed in this particular Hebraic lifestyle. So uh, be with those who wanted to join the study, but for whatever reason weren't able to. I pledge to bless those who join the study after the fact via YouTube video or iTunes podcast or whatnot. Um, continue to strengthen us, Lord, and protect us and give us a, a voice of sanity in this otherwise absolutely upside down, insane world that we live in. Help us to continue to have that blessed hope as we look forward to the soon return of our Messiah, Yeshua, and we'll continue to give the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Okay, everyone. My name is Ariman Lyman Hanavi, and this is a study uh, this is a, a study entitled eschatology a biblical study of end time events and we're looking at the 70th week of daniel specifically we're turning to the final seven years of this intense time that is described by the bible not just daniel but described by the bible as a time period when um mankind's regimes and the the uh what we might call the rebellion of mankind comes to a head and God allows this to happen by bringing in key players into um, into the world events, particularly when I'd be looking at Antichrist right around the corner. And how is this going to affect not just everyone in the world, right? We, we understand Antichrist is something that is, or a figure that's going to have his um, influence worldwide, but particularly how is it going to affect Israel, the people of Israel and the land of Israel, and the the religion of Israel. And so that's kind of where we're going in our Bible study right now. As you can see, give me a second, I'm gonna switch uh, to a different slide for a second. As you can see on my screen, there is a topical index to the study that we're working through. Uh, right now I've got 17 topics that you can see on my screen right now. And we've worked our way from topic one through topic four. We're currently on topic five, Book of Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And I'm excited about the topic that follows next, which is topic six, excursus, Antichrist, according to Robert Van Campen. Robert Van Campen is a Christian uh, author, businessman, and uh, 
private collector of Bible, of ancient scrolls and things like that. He passed away nearly 20 years ago. So earlier, I think either 1999 or 2000, somewhere around there, he passed away. So over 20 years ago. But he wrote a fascinating book on end time prophecy, and he's got a chapter in his book on the Antichrist. And I thought it was a great way to introduce the topic of the Antichrist by bringing in his notes. So we'll look at that soon. We might get to tonight. I, we might not, but let's turn back to where we left off last week. We're talking about the 70th week and I have this particular slide in front of us. It reads at this point, right in the study that we've been taking at this point, let's continue our summary of the 70th week of Daniel by examining an additional interpretation from a slightly different perspective. And we already looked at, I believe it was um, kingcomments.com earlier. Go back and listen to last week's uh, study if you're not following what I'm saying. But we're going to turn today, tonight, to a Christian blog post by the name of thebiblesays.com. And here's what they have to say about the events that will unfold in those last days, the last 70th week, beginning at the midpoint of the week and going forward. And let me interject and just remind you, let me jump to that different slide again, different view. Remind you that when we're talking about the 70th week of Daniel, we're talking about, from the zoom out perspective, 490 years that God had given this revelation to Daniel of events that would take place on planet Earth and that would have specific impact on the people that Daniel was connected to, i.e. the Jewish people. They would impact the land of Israel. They would impact the temple and the activities that take place in that location of the world. So Daniel was given this vision of 490 years, and it broke it, it was broken down along the lines of three sections, a first section of seven weeks, a middle section of 62 weeks, and then a final section of seven, I say 62 weeks, one and then one week. And we found that the interpretation is that these weeks equal years. So uh, using this particular chart that I've been uh, borrowing from the premillennial pre-wrath perspective, we see that the time period that we're looking at is the last seven years known by most Christians as the tribulation, which I I'm going to talk about eventually. I believe that that label is a bit oversimplified when we say the seven year tribulation, but nevertheless, as we begin to look at the events that take place during those last seven years on earth, or I shouldn't say the last seven years, but the last seven year significant uh, time frame that God gave to Daniel, that last seven years. And then there's some more, even days that trail out out of that, like 30 days and 45 days afterwards that we'll get to eventually. But for now, we're looking at this idea of what is this last 70th week going to entail? Are you as a Christian going to be suddenly whisked away, raptured out before any seven year stuff hits the fan? If you know what I'm talking about, any tribulation hardship hits planet earth. Is that what the view is? Well, Many people believe so. We will eventually get to a talk on rapture views, right? You remember my eschatology schedule there. You see that we're going to be looking at Yeshua's Olivet Discourse studies uh, soon. That's in the works. And then when we hit chapter or topic 9 and 10 and 11, we'll be talking about rapture views and things like that. So we will eventually get to those talks. So are you going to be raptured away as a Christian? In other words, you know, maybe it doesn't matter what, what is going to happen during the seventh week. I mean, if you're just going to be in heaven during all of the mess, then why study the 70th week? Well, what if you're wrong? 
what if your eschatology was not accurate? What if your end times scheduling and your chart wasn't on in line with really what God had planned? And uh, what I'm saying is, I'm not saying you're going to miss the rapture because you're not really saved. Perish that thought. I'm saying, what if you got the rapture timing wrong? What if, in fact, it turns out that the rapture takes place a little bit into the seventh week, say midpoint, or three quarters of the way in, or halfway through, or at the very end? What if God has determined that we're going to go through the whole thing? Well, my perspective as a pre-rather is that we aren't going to go through all of it. Rather, the, the tribulation will take place sometime after the midpoint, and then after that, about halfway into the second half of the 70th week, somewhere in there, we should see some type of rapture. But that's why we're going to be looking at this 70th week, because there's a good possibility that we might go through some antichrist type of stuff. So let's begin to look at this 70th week. Bible, um, the BibleSays.com has their blog post, and here's what they have to say about these particular events. Quote, and from this point, for the next few slides, if you notice the font is italicized, and that will let you know that we're reading this particular blog. So this is, these aren't my thoughts, but I think that these thoughts are beneficial for our study. So that's why I brought them into my study here. Quote, in the middle of this seven-year covenant, the prince will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. Sacrifices and religious practice will be forbidden by this world dictator. The vision in Daniel 7 spoke of this prince changing times and laws. His co complete dominance of other nations would last for three and a half years, according to Daniel 7.25. Important information for us to consider that as we move into the 70 week, the, into this final seven-year slice of history, that some type of world leader will make it possible for the people of Israel in the Middle East, namely the, the Jewish people, those of religious persuasion, will have his hand in, in allowing sacrifices to be brought back to a, pre, a preeminent position. Now, whether he's the one that actually brings that specifically to pass or he's behind the scenes and we don't know it and they just somehow negotiate with the Arab leaders, the, um, the, the Arab powers that are in control of the Temple Mount area. We know, of course, that, you know, if you're a religious Jew and you go up there on the Temple Mount, that that's uh, that's just like a war zone waiting to happen, right? It's a powder keg. Um, it's, it's, you know, if you try to sacrifice any type of animals up there on the Temple Mount, heck, even if you just go up there with your prayer book to pray, right? Um, you can get in trouble and you can, you can cause all kinds of uh, conflict to to spread. I mean, even if it, it's something just as innocent as one person going up and trying to 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 have some type of a prayer service with 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 God from a Jewish perspective, because the whole Temple Mount is deemed kind of property of of certain um, Muslim groups and things like that. Well, then it's kind of basically uh, forbidden, right? A uh, place for Jews to go up there. So you can imagine if they're going to say, "Hey, let's go up and let's get a sacrifice, sacrificial altar going, right? Somewhere where we can start bringing our sacrifices going again." All kinds of problems would 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 just rise to the forefront, right? Um, you know, peace in the Middle East is 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 always been hanging by a thread. You know, at any moment, just any little any little incident can tip things in the wrong direction and all of a sudden, you got you know rockets flying in um, from, in both directions, right? You know, I mean, I'm I'm not always saying Israel is the one who's in, the innocent ones. I'm just saying that people 
do things that are interpreted by someone else and then somebody's ready to point a gun at you. So all of this is just very, very, uh, uh, what should I say? It's all very um, detailed information that from Daniel's perspective, he's just thinking, well, hey, you know, as a people group, uh, as a Jewish people, sacrifices go hand in hand with our worship of God. And now that Israel's back in their land and in control of certain parts of their land, we have to remember that they're still not yet in control of all the places that they would like to be. Let's keep reading this particular commentary. So talking about this idea of a seven-year contract or some type of peace treaty that allows Israel to have a little bit more freedom than what they would now. Obviously, this is also going to affect just the, 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 the generic, what we might call political perspective in the Middle East. Some type of peace treaty between Israel and her neighbors doesn't have to include animal sacrifices, the point I'm trying to bring up. So the Antichrist might not have to have his hand in that particular part of the uh, process that Daniel read about or was informed about. Nevertheless, the fact that the Bible talks about him strengthening a covenant or allowing a covenant to uh, have a place where Israel can have peace with their neighbors and the neighbors can have peace with Israel, right? It goes both ways. Then we have to allow, and if we just take scripture in its face value aspect, then this particular leader, whether he's known to be the Antichrist or not, that's not important at the moment. I, I, I get the impression that Israel won't know who he truly is. But what is important is, and we'll pick up a reading here, is that this particular detailing about the seven-year contract, whether it's really seven years on the paper, it could be longer, but Antichrist has his own ideas. This fits with the words of prophecy here and in Daniel 9, that halfway into this seven-year covenant, the prince this Antichrist figure, would violate the treaty and forbid the Jews from sacrifices. So that's the part that is written in Scripture. That's the part, This, in fact, this midpoint activities about the violation of the covenant, The uh, what we're going to be reading about as a, was known as the abomination of desolation, right? The, this person who rises up and reveals to Israel and the rest of the world that he's not really who he was said he was at the beginning of the whatever contract that he makes. Um, this midpoint event is described in the Bible as three and a half years. Alternately, it's given the name 42 months. Um, uh, what, what do we say? 1260 days. So we know the time frame is fairly accurate when we're talking about a half point of a seven year time period. So I, I don't think there's much question there because it's it's been recorded in so many different spots, not just in one book of the Bible. It shows up in other places and we can corroborate the information and come to some conclusions there. This particular website continues. In 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writes of the Antichrist, quote, and this is Paul's quote, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God of object or God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God in quote. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.4. We also know that and we, we're not going to do this today. We might do this in time, but just this is the overview. We know that from looking at the terminology that Paul left for us in the Greek, the words for temple, temple of God, things like that, it does not necessitate that a full-blown temple edifice be constructed for these events to take place. Indeed, we could have either something as simple as almost like a tabernacle-type tabernacle structure with a place where we can have an altar where blood is poured out 
that type of setup, you know, something that's portable even, but doesn't have to necessarily be very big. Also, I was reviewing Tim Haig's notes on this portion of the Bible in Daniel, and he reminds us in his research that the Greek here supports the idea that perhaps even the Antichrist simply goes up on the Temple Mount and declares himself to be God or something to that effect. When it says takes a seat in the temple of God, the Greek may even allow for the fact that it's just talking about the, the, the current location that we recognize is the temple mount. In other words, there might not even have to be really much of a structure put into place. Imagine this, a world leader, three and a half years into whatever contract in his mind, three and a half years in, I mean, we'll know after the fact, right? At, at the midpoint, when we see this thing taking place, then we'll retroactively be able to go, oh, oh, that, that covenant got put together three and a half years ago. Because now we'll know we're at three year mark, three and a half year mark, if we're still here on planet Earth, right? If indeed my perspective of rapture view is accurate, then we'll still be here. And so that'll probably make headlines. Some guy hitting the world scene, opposing and exalting himself above every so-called God or object of worship, right? That's pretty significant. Also keep in mind, there will be other activities that take place that we're going to read about when we finally get to Yeshua's Olivet Discourse of Jerusalem itself being surrounded by armies and, and being besieged and God allowing Israel, uh, I'm sorry, allowing Jerusalem to be overtaken and occupied by Antichrist and his military forces. So we know he's going to occupy Jerusalem. We know he's going to attack Jerusalem. And we also know that he's going to destroy any religion that opposes him. He's going to seek to destroy how much leeway God gives him. That's that, that's to be seen. And we'll look at those scriptures in time. We also know that he's going to be, begin this intense persecution on everyone who doesn't line and step with his particular program, his regime, his his uh, military campaigns and things like that. I mean, if, if you don't take his mark, if you don't take his side, so a lot of really bad stuff is going to start unfolding right there from the midpoint going forward is the point I'm trying to uh, emphasize here. Let's keep reading this blog. Quote, Jesus also talks about this moment, and see, I got ahead of myself if I just have read the slide. Jesus talks about this moment that will take place during the end times, referencing the book of Daniel. Quote, the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place. And quote, that's uh, lifted from Matthew 24, 15. What we're going to do when we finally turn to our study on Antichrist right around the corner, the next topic, we will we'll continue our look through Daniel and we'll move from Daniel 9 into chapters 10, 11, and 12, the last three chapters of the book of Daniel, where more detail about the activities of the Antichrist as seen not just through the lens of what was near to Daniel, i.e. the one of the strongest shadows of the Antichrist, which is our forerunners of the Antichrist, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, right? Antiochus IV, which was nearer to Daniel than he is to us now. And we'll look at that as we look through Daniel 9, I'm sorry, Daniel 10, 11, and 12, but realizing that the activities of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is now a historical figure, right? He lived a few centuries before Yeshua, before the first uh, century, realizing that his activities are described in the Bible in a type and shadow type of relationship where we have a near-term event and a far-term event or a shadow, which is then... Uh, um, uh, gives way to the type itself, right? So we have kind of forerunners. Um, 
uh, what we say, um, uh, examples of something that's going to happen farther into the future that are already be able that, that we can already glean information from what from looking at the historical earlier incidents. So uh, when we begin to study Antichrist, we'll see more of these details, and we're going to use the Book of Daniel uh, to help us out there. Continuing into this particular blog commentary, this prince who is to come, who is the beast, right? Revelation gives him the name the beast. And remember Daniel in his dream in Daniel chapter seven, he saw four beasts. And then of these four beasts in the fourth beast, which was Rome in the vision, this fourth beast had this peculiar aspect of having in Daniel's dream, 10 horns, but in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was 10 toes. So this 10 aspect of this final empire, this final world power, overlays with the fourth beast, which was Rome. So we got the near far going on there, the prophetic telescoping of two mountain peaks, where the fourth beast is actually the final beast as well. The fourth metal is actually the final empire before Yeshua establishes his final kingdom. This prince who's to come goes by a few other names. Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the little horn, the king of the north, the beast in the book of Revelation, etc., etc. He's going to forbid worship of other gods, as blog says, and he's going to make himself out to be God, lowercase g, demanding worship. I find it interesting as I interject that since he is a replacement of Yeshua, in the in his mind he is the antichrist right the he's the you know in, even in his title anti which can have a connotation of either someone who is an imitation of something else the genuine right or he's someone who opposes the genuine so he's the he's the antagonist in our story right yeshua is the protagonist yeshua and this guy's the antagonist right if you follow that terminology he's the bad guy right and of the story but also, he makes himself out to be God, which is quite interesting if you think from his perspective, he's going to declare himself to be God or deity, and yet we have all of these discussions that I'm having in my later study of, of apologetics where I'm arguing for the Trinitarian perspective that Yeshua is very God. Well, if the Antichrist makes himself out to be the antithesis to the true messiah right he's the anti-messiah the anti-messiah the opposite of messiah he's the the reverse messiah if you follow like say the flash tv show there's the flash who's the good guy and then there's the reverse flash who's the bad guy right if you follow superman comics there's superman who's the good guy and then there's bizarro who's the kind of reverse of superman right the opposite so it's this kind of dualistic perspective of good versus bad and bad versus good, the yin-yang principle go all going, going, going all over again. So we got Antichrist, we have Christ and we have Antichrist. Well, if Christ declared himself or demonstrated himself to be God, it seems very reasonable that the Antichrist is also going to have some similar wording. He's going to declare himself or make himself out to be what? Not just a God, not just not just a, a an inspired or divine man not just what like non-trinitarians like to say about yeshua just he's just he's only human or he's he's a he's a what do we say he's a holy man you know he's he's someone who's been glorified by god but he's not very deity but no the antichrist is going to say that he's deity or at least as far as i can tell he's going to make himself out to say hey i'm very god you need to worship me and stop worshiping everything else well that's going to be bad news for every other religion in the world 
I mean every other religion, not just Christianity, not just Judaism, that's going to have its you know direct effect when he takes his uh, seat in Jerusalem and in the temple and declares Jerusalem to be his capital. Um, he, that's not just bad news for the people over there. If he declares himself to be God, the, here's the point why I'm bringing this up. If he declares himself to be God demanding worship of the entire world, this spells bad news for every other religion in the world at that point in time. Okay, So that's what we need to be kind of be aware of is that if we're still alive and on planet earth during this time then you're gonna to have to make a decision am i going to worship the one true god or am i going to cave in to this uh be the man the demands of this particular beast this blog continues gabriel explains that on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate the beast will make the temple desolate empty and assert himself as god in the temple and of course indeed the fact that he desolates the temple and and desecrates it and if he's following in the footsteps of his forerunner which is antiochus epiphanes or other beast type people he'll be someone that was not only initially thought to be good hey aren't you the guy that we cut a peace treaty with hey aren't you the guy that guaranteed peace between us i'm speaking as if i'm the israelis at the time aren't you the guy that guaranteed us peace between us and our neighbors aren't you the guy that said we could have religious freedom aren't you the guy that seemingly brought priest peace to that part of the of the world which is something that no one no their leader has been able to really accomplish on a long scale long-term scale right aren't you the guy who was on our side well, that's when, of course, he reveals his true character, you know, takes off the, the the false mask of peace and says, ah, I'm the devil incarnate. And indeed, we're going to find out that that seems to be really be the case when the devil gives his authority, his own authority, Satan's authority to this beast so that he can perform all of these horrendous and heinous things that he does and steps in the footsteps, not just of earlier antichrists such as Antiochus Epiphanes, but in the footsteps of other evil wicked rulers that we've read about you know like hitlers and mussolini's and and even in the footsteps of people who earlier were seemingly on god's side right saul was god's chosen but then he turned and disobeyed god and became an enemy of god and pursued david right uh forcing david to you know hide out in caves and things like that for a good number good portion of his early life uh or solomon my good friend study buddy who's in the uh, chat room with us right now who's in the live Skype room. He's he and I had a conversation last week, and we talked about how that Antichrist is also, and we'll see this when we get to the book of First John. Antichrist is someone who is described as someone who was with us, but now he's not with us. He was someone who left us, which proves that he was never really part of us. But after the fact, noticing that he's a person who we thought he was one of our one of us. We thought he was on our side. We thought he was a true believer or someone who worshipped the true God. But he turned. He left that he fell from faith and we know also that this time period is going to be characterized by a falling away a great falling away of people who profess to be believers so these are just some of the ideas we're going to be uh, looking at that more specifically when we get to the antichrist topic but i thought i'd kind of whet your appetite for now let's keep going in this particular study gabriel this blog says Gabriel brings his message to a conclusion, explaining to Daniel, of course, that the prince will persist in blasphemies until a complete destruction, one that is decreed by God, will be poured out on the one who makes desolate the beast. So we're we're kind of doing an ex um an excursus or an examination or exegetical study on just Daniel 9:27, the last verse. And in so doing, by looking at this 
final verse in the book of Daniel, we're turned to this topic of this final prince, which remember from Daniel's perspective of near far, there are there's going to be language that is appropriate to assign to the near person in Daniel's vision, which could have been Antiochus Epiphanes and very likely was, or the near person that showed up around the 70 AD mark being Vespasian and Titus and the emperors that allowed Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed, the Jerusalem to be sacked, the Jewish people to be driven out, etc., etc. That is also the the prince and the people who came and allowed all of the desolations of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of the people of, of, of Israel, the Jewish people from their land, etc., etc. All of that is the shadow for which there's a greater fulfillment. We could say that was a partial fulfillment for which there's a greater fulfillment, I believe, in the future. Now, again, we talked at length about if you're a preterist, then you, particularly of the um, hyper-preterist or the full preterist persuasion, then you believe all of this took place in the early parts of, you know, 2000 years ago, 70 AD, 130s, et cetera, et cetera. You don't believe there's really any prophecy left to be filled in by some future seven-year uh, time period known as the tribulation or future antichrist, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're a partial preterist or what they, they call themselves orthodox preterist, I believe they do allow for some final tribulation type of activity to take place, although it's very difficult for me to ascertain exactly how much they hold to. I think they still put most of their hermeneutic understanding of eschatology as taking place in the past. But let's keep reading this particular commentary, this blog. So this particular time frame that we're looking at of the midpoint and going forward, Daniel's already witnessed this destruction in a vision during the reign of King Belshazzar, who predict who preceded King Darius. This vision is recorded in Daniel 7, where the beast's destruction is described. We're talking about from the midpoint going forward, God has decreed that it's going to be hell on earth for us for a while, but God will ultimately rescue his people. Remember the vision that was given Daniel ends on a positive note, if we go back to the the vision in Daniel 7, it ends on a positive note with the rock coming that was cut without hands and striking the statue in Daniel 2, but the Ancient of Days being approached by the one who's like the Son of Man in Daniel 7, right? There's That's the one-to-one -one correlation. This signifies the Messianic kingdom that's going to be established here on earth by Yeshua himself. So that's the the positive note that the vision ends on. And so this particular blog reminds us that that event that allows God's king to be, to be established on earth spells the end of the dominion of the Antichrist and of the final, uh, what we might call, effort of humanity to thwart God's plans and to thumb their nose at God's Messiah and to say no to his plans. God says, nope, in the end, I'm going to have my way because I'm more powerful, because I'm very God and I represent all that is truth. And what my word says stands. It's forever established. It cannot be changed. And because God decreed that the Antichrist will come to an end and the final beast empire will be destroyed, and the beast slain, then that's what we can look forward to. And so this blog post puts it this way. This vision is recorded in Daniel 7, where the beast's destruction is described using these this language. Quote, the beast was slain, 
and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire, Daniel 7.11. We keep reading, this will conclude the 70 weeks of this message. The first 69 weeks happened in succession. That is seven weeks plus 62 weeks, right? Remember that chart? Let me flip over to that real quick. Seven weeks being the 49 years, followed immediately by the 62 week, which was the 434 years. You can see those two on your chart. So that represents history gone by. And then we had the cross event, the big cross right there in the middle of your chart. And then we had this gap that we're living in now, the church age or the times of the Gentiles, uh, the diaspora, if you want to call it that, that's fine. And then we're looking forward to this final seven years. Of course, this is a non-preterist looking chart. The preterist would, would smash all of the three sections of the seven, the six, two, and the, and the one all back together. But this blog says that the first 69 weeks happened in succession, one after another, which is very interesting that there's no gap between any seven, the first seven and the 69. They all worked, you know, uh, one right after another, no gap or anything. But notice this, this chart also, this blog post mentions, but the last week, the seven years has yet to happen. So we're talking about a gap. They describe it as a clock being on pause. I know some people who don't like talking about the, the fact that there is a gap or they disagree with the perspective that there's a gap. Again, preterists are of that persuasion that there isn't really a gap, but there's language in Daniel's prophecy that suggests that even if you don't say there's a 2,000-year gap, you have to still say there's some gap of years because Messiah is cut off after the 69 weeks. So there has to be a gap there. It's afterwards. And then, of course, the destruction of the temple and the plowing under of Jerusalem also take place after the 69 weeks. So there has to be some gap. It just depends on how big it is. But the clock is on pause, this blog says. The first event that started the clock ticking was a decree to rebuild. The next event that will start the clock ticking will be a firm covenant. Again, just we don't know for certain what that wording of the covenant will be, whether it will be seven years, what will be longer, whether it will be announced by the parties involved. One thing is probably certain if you are even remotely aware of what's going on in the world, if you live in a place where you have access to some measured amount of news information, then when there is some form of lasting peace in the Middle East between Israel and her neighbors, that will surely make world headlines. I, I, I can't imagine why it wouldn't, right? Whenever there's some type of accord that takes place in the Middle East, that's brokered between Israel and her and her neighbors and the, the surrounding uh, Muslim powers and Arab states around her, that always makes headlines. It, it, it always does. So I can't imagine it would be any different. So the next event that will start the clock ticking will be a firm covenant. Will we know that it's seven years? Well, we may, we may not. Will the Antichrist announce his plans? Hey, I'm making a seven-year contract with Israel and, and her neighbors. I mean, that would be great if he just took away all of the uh, secrecy and made it plain right up front, but we don't know. The, but one thing's for certain, if Israel enters into some form of peaceful negotiation, and it's not just, we're not just talking about a ceasefire, we're talking about something that appears to be lasting. From Israel's perspective and from the perspective of her neighbors, it's probably something that will have language that describes, you know, uh, lasting peace, not just not just uh, let's stop firing at each other. Not just uh, like we said, uh, um, uh, a laying down of our arm, or you know what we might call it. Um, uh, let's stop firing at each other. Just a 
I, I think it'll be more, uh, the wording will be stronger than that. Let's keep reading. This blog continues. The text says that after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, right? We're talking about this gap period. It does not say he will be cut off during the final week, but after the 62 weeks, indicating that there is time between the consecutive 69 weeks and the final week of prophecy. <clears throat> so again, even if you're a full-blown preterist, then you have to recognize that there are details and activities that take place <clears throat> between the 69 weeks and the final seven that seem to allow for some passage of time between those two um, uh, time frames. This blog continues. It says that um, there's time between the consecutive 69 weeks and the final seven, final week of prophecy. The final seven is discussed separately from the first 69 sevens. There is a clear gap in this prophetic message. And I, I agree with the this particular website's uh, sentiment. I think it's parent that even at face value that daniel was giving us these threefold breakdown of seven weeks which is 49 years and then the 62 weeks let me go back to our chart the 62 weeks which was 480 uh 434 years and then whether we say there's a gap or not we at least have to recognize that daniel uses the language of uh in the middle of the week he will and then he will make a covenant for one week and in the middle of the week so he describes the final seven year either way there seems to be the language that tells us that the breakdown must be there there is a clear gap in this prophetic message uh, according to my understanding let's continue from the present we can look back and see that all the events of the first 69 weeks have happened a decree was made jerusalem was rebuilt as well as the events after the 69 weeks happened i.e the death of the messiah and the destruction of jerusalem this is a kind of a summary and conclusion to our look at the book of daniel and the well not the book of daniel but summary conclusions on the initial overview of daniel's 70 weeks and we're now drawing our summary and conclusions about the final 70th week in our particular study this blog says but the final seven years is reserved for the future it contains the final abominations rebellions and wicked rulers on earth before god restores his creation fully they continue when the last week is finished the promises in verse 24 will come to pass. Remember those promises? Let me just bring up a look at those promises real quick, just to remind you. I had this pulled up earlier, but it's in verse 24 of Daniel. Let's blow that up. Remember, these are the promises that God gave to Daniel. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Look at these six things. To finish the transgression, that's one. To make an end of sin, that's two. To make atonement for iniquity, that's three. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that's four. To seal up vision and prophecy, that's five. And to anoint the most holy place, that's six. Of course, there are different ways to interpret these six. We could say that the last one, for instance, is to anoint the most holy person, since literally it just says the, to anoint the most holy in the Hebrew, uh, the Kadosh Kadashim. But either way you look at it, God promised through Daniel, through the prophecies given to Daniel, that God would make these things come to pass. And of course, God is going to keep his word and God's going to make these things come to pass using his chosen servant, Messiah, Yeshua. Yeshua is the only one who can bring all of these things to pass. And indeed, we could say that the first three were brought to some form of partial completion at the death of Messiah, but a full completion in the spiritual sense, right? Finish the transgression. Yeshua brought 
the fullness of payment for transgressions and sins against God by dying on the cross. To make an end of sin, Yeshua brought the final death blow to sin by dying and being resurrected and being uh, uh, seated at the right hand of his Father. Sin has now been defeated because of the work on the cross and to make atonement for iniquity. That is the purpose of Yeshua bringing his blood before the altar of God in heaven to make atonement for the iniquity and the sins, not of himself, but for the sins of all humanity or those who would call upon his name as Lord and Master and Savior. But notice the final three, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal a vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Those things have yet to have a final future fulfillment. So let's go back to this blog. The, um, they talk about that God will finish the transgressions of the world and bring in everlasting righteousness. I mean, look at Israel today. Has she atoned for her? Oh, well, let me say it this way. Has she accepted the atonement that Messiah offered up on her behalf? Not on your life. She's still largely in a place of spiritual blindness where she rejects the atonement of Messiah. She rejects the uh, righteousness that he offers through his sacrificial death on the cross. And so she is in need corporately of this fulfillment on her behalf. Individually, she can step into that. And, you know, Baruch Hashem, there are Jews who have been accepting Yeshua down through history. In scores and in numbers, in the first century, there were myriads, right? Several thousands of Jews who came to believe that Yeshua was, in fact, the uh, promised Messiah that they read about in their scriptures. But right now, by and large, for the most part, national Israel is still in blindness. Go back and read Romans chapter 11 all over again. God will finish the transgression of the world and bring in everlasting righteousness, not just for the world, not just for the church, but for Israel. Look what this blog post has to say. This has not yet happened. The book of Revelation covers the final three and a half years in great detail. In Revelation chapters 6 through 16, this three and a half year period is likely the time referred to by Jesus as the time of great tribulation in the book of Matthew. We'll turn to that in time, but let's keep working our way through this blog post. They continue, the chapter ends without further explanation or commentary from Daniel, right? Just cuts off abruptly. We have to finish the story by reading through the rest of Daniel's book, which will not Again, this is not a deep dive into the book of Daniel, but we will borrow some of the notes from chapters 10 through 12 when we start turning to look at the campaigning of the Antichrist, both preceding at, at the, the, mid, the, the early parts of the week and the latter half of the week. We'll look at those details when we get to our study on the Antichrist. This blog continues, doubtless, speaking of Daniel, he was astounded by the message. He had begun with a prayer, hoping that God would restore Jerusalem and Judah to the Jewish people. The answer was beyond his expectations, which is this. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. It will also be destroyed again. But God is working to do more than restore a city. And then their final slide reads this way. He is working to end all sin and establish eternal righteousness, right? The bringing in of the kingdom. Let me turn to that slide one more time. Notice that in the slide that I have here, we see that the last week ends with the second advent of the Messiah, the coming to planet Earth physically, bodily. We're not just rapturing where we're yanking the saints up and pulling us into heaven, but Yeshua coming and returning with his saints to planet Earth to establish his kingdom of a thousand years, which we believe is the literal thousand-year millennial kingdom, which takes place at the far right of the chart that you're looking at right now. So going back to this final slide in this particular blog, God's final purpose is to bring 
and into sin and establish eternal righteousness. This is God's final purpose for the earth, to redeem it and to put away wickedness forever. But it's also going to include putting an end to sin within national Israel as they finally look on him whom they've pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, like we read about in Zechariah chapter 14. Despite Daniel's exile, he's given a message of hope and blessing far greater than he imagined. And that's the message that we also need to remind ourselves as we're working our way through these studies, that if you read through the prophecies that are given to us in the Old Testament, there's a lot of doom and gloom in there, a lot of destruction of Israel, a lot of destruction of of nations surrounding Israel, right? We talk about the destruction of Babylon and the falling of Babylon and things like that. God has the final say in demonstrating that he's going to establish righteousness in the earth. He's not going to allow his plans to be thwarted no matter how evil and wicked things get in the world, right? When Antichrist finally comes to power and at the midpoint of the week, he shows who truly is not just to Israel, but to the rest of the world, demands worldwide worship, implements the mark of the beast, and forbids anyone from buying and selling unless they have the mark and worship him and worship them and take the mark. And he's going to be persecuting Christians and anyone who opposes him, Jewish people. He goes out to make war with the saints and overcome them. He's even going to be, uh, uh, there's going to be a great tribulation at that time that will surpass anything that's ever happened in the world up to that point. If we take Yeshua's words literally and factually. And so this will be the time of Jacob's trouble, but it'll also be the time of trouble where the entire world is teetering and tottering back and forth. We read about some of the language in the prophecies. The point I'm bringing up is that no matter how bad it gets in the world with the demonic deception and the, the great falling away that Paul talks about in, in his Thessalonian chapter uh, books, letters, no matter how bad it gets, like we're going to read about in the book of Revelation with all the plagues and the locusts and the, the, the fire and the, the, you know, the, the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, all of that is going to come to a conclusion when Yeshua establishes his kingdom on earth physically right bodily here like we read about read, like we saw in the vision of the statue where the stone strikes the statue at the feet at the toe level at that stage that gives us kind of an indicator of the timing that we're looking at the stone strikes the statue not at the head or the chest or in the midsection but on the toe section right when the last final beast empire is in power when the 10 nation coalition is in power when the antichrist is thinking that he probably cannot be equaled or rivaled or defeated. God's going to uh, sorely disappoint him. Likewise, in Daniel's vision of the beasts, when the uh, um, one like the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, it's during the stages of that last great dreadful beast who trembles the entire earth and the time of the ten horns and the little horn who, who, who plucks out three before him, right? That's the time frame that we're looking at. So um, it's it's not all doom and gloom is the point I'm trying to say. And we talked about this last week. The only way that you're that we are going to make it as as humans right on this time period, because we, we can't withstand the onslaught of Antichrist on our own as human beings. The only way we're going to be able to make it is if we cling to the one who has defeated death itself. The only one who is the true champion in God's playbook, and that is his son, Messiah Yeshua. You've got to know him. You've got to have a relationship with him. Let's keep uh, going through our slides here. So with these details before us, there are, in my opinion, a few questions that naturally come to mind concerning Daniel's prophecy. Let's take the last 
say, 10, 15 minutes to look at the final uh, slides. We're basically on slide 53 of 80. I don't think we'll make it through all of the slides. Obviously, we'll keep going with this. I'm not rushing the material, but let's let's get into some of these questions that I've uh, put together. First questions, these are in no particular order. These are just questions that, that I uh, found relevant for this type of study. Question, first, why is this prophecy important and why and what is the relevancy what is the relevance to the church and to end times, right? These are questions you might have as a Christian or even as a non-Christian, right? Here's an answer that I have uh, come up with. It's not the final answer, and you could probably come up with a better answer, but this is the answer that I have put together. So notice that the, the uh, font is not italics anymore. That means these are my own thoughts. This is a study I put together 20 years ago, right? And then I had to kind of rework it and, and retool it for this study here in 2023. But most of it's still the same. So the question is, why is this prophecy important that we read about in Daniel, and what's the relevance to the church and to end times? Answer, Jesus' disciples asked him what would be the sign of the end of the age and the sign of his return in Matthew 24, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. We'll get to that in time, remember? Jesus replied by telling them what to expect. And so he gives them some things to look forward to, not necessarily things that you would want to happen when I say look forward to, not in a good sense, but negative things that are going to be happening, but nevertheless, you can watch for them, right? False Christs, wars, rumors of wars, desolation, famine, persecution, going along with the same question. And then he refers to the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, right? Matthew 24, 15. So all of this language that Jesus warned us about, that the Messiah gave us in advance, gives us this sense of we might not know the exact timing of the events, but at least we can discern the season. We can discern the kind of the sentiments of the age, the the signs that precede what's really coming down the pike. The point that I'm highlighting is that he didn't just say to his disciples, well, don't worry about it. When it happens, it's going to happen. And you just guys just need to be ready. No, he actually answered their question in a very, very detailed way. We'll see when we get to those chapters in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. In bold, I write, write these notes. Understand Jesus was telling the disciples what would transpire just prior to his return and specifically mentions the events of Daniel 9.27. So that's very, very important. Here's another question that came to my mind that I hope that you're considering the answer to as well. Question, if the 70th week is yet to be fulfilled, like I believe it is from a futurist perspective, why is there such a long gap between the 69th and the 70th weeks? Again, this is a question whose answer is really uh, open for discussion with the preterists, those who believe there isn't really a gap. So listen to my answer or an answer that might sound similar to what other other futurists would also add or lend to the table. Consider what has transpired in the intervening years. The Jews were dispersed to wander without a home for nearly 19 centuries, but in that same time period, the Church of Jesus Christ was established among the Gentiles. Shaul speaks of this at length in Romans chapters 9 through 11. So, continuing along with this question about why is there a gap, notice what Paul says in Romans. Quote, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what I have to say, continuing along with this particular answer about why the gap, 
when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, this phrase that Paul introduced into his book, the veil of blindness will be lifted from Israel's eyes and the remnant of Israel will be saved in Jesus, the Messiah. So we're talking about, when we go back over to that chart about the gap, the church age, it's a time that is dominated not really by Israel as a people group, but rather by the Gentiles as people. And this is why we have confidence that there is a gap because we know from hindsight and from reading through other New Testament passages that there is this mystery of the Gentile inclusion into the people of God as Gentiles. It was not really a mystery that the Gentiles would be included in God's people. That really was told all the way back to Abraham when God said, I will bless those that bless you, curse those that curse you, and through you all the nations, i.e. Gentiles, Goyim, people groups around you, the peoples of the world, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Genesis chapter 12. So we know that the Gentiles would always have a place in God's economy and in God's people, but the, the mystery was how would they fit in? According to Israel and the mystery, and I'll put a little graphic on the screen to show this, according to Israel's, national Israel's speculation, according to their figuring out of things, Gentiles would come into Israel via conversion. They would have to change their status from Gentile, become a Jew, and they would join the people group as, as Jews. So thus, the people of God would always really be composed and comprised of Jewish peoples, whether you're natural born or convert, but either way, you're Jewish. That was their perspective, at least as it came to uh, to be articulated in the first century and later, or the first few centuries before the first century, you know, following the Maccabean period and going forward with the first forced uh, physical circumcision and things like that. So they were really confused by physical circumcision, the act of circumcision, turning a person into a Jew, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But Paul was given the revelation that no, that's not the way... The Gentiles are to be included into the people group of God. It's a mystery to Israel. They were blinded to that. God knew of it. It was a mystery to the Jewish people, but it was not a mystery to God. So that's why Paul says that when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, meaning the full measure of the people that God has determined are going to be joining the family of God, after that takes place, then the veil of blindness on Israel will be lifted from her eyes and the remnant of Israel will be saved in Jesus the Messiah, i.e. as we work our way towards the uh, culmination of the end of the age, then Israel's blindness will be removed. I continue, the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and the blindness of Israel's remnant will be lifted during the second half of Daniel's 70th week. And that's a very important event for us to look forward to. Let's continue with the um, uh, uh, particular uh, uh, questions that I formulated. How do we know the first seals of Daniel, I'm sorry, the first seals of Revelation 6 are within the 70th week of Daniel? So we're talking about questions that arise when you have a study on the 70th week, the final seven-year slice of history that is primarily given over to, to humanity. How do we know that the first seals of Revelation are within? For instance, when I listen to Bible preachers today, prophecy teachers, many of them are fond of saying, well, we don't have to say that all of the seals are in the, in the 70th week. Maybe, you know, because we'd have wars and rumors of wars, false Christs, we've had earthquakes in diverse places, we've had all kinds of political unrest, religious unrest, religious persecution going on for, for thousands of years, right? And especially in the church age, you know, the church has been persecuted for the last 1900 years or so. So why do we have to smash everything or, or uh, collect everything into the final seven years? Ah, okay. 
it's a good question. And my understanding as an end times Bible prophecy buff and a, a futurist is that most of the concentrated events will take place in the 70th week. And there's good reason for it. Here's my answer. Let's take a look at a chart to remind us what the seven seals of Revelation chapter six entail. Afterwards, we will label each seal and place all seven into Daniel's final seven, final week of seven years. So um, I, I'm not going to bring up a reading of the book of Revelation. We'll get to that in time. But just be aware that in the book of Revelation, the writer, which is John, the revelator, he's shown by Yeshua several visions with several details. And among them, there are seven in this order. There are seven seals seven trumpets and seven bowls and these seals trumpets and bowls describe different events that unfold before john's eyes in apocalyptic fashion in symbolic fashion in visionary fashion but they correspond to events that'll take place on earth and i believe that there is a what we might call a chronology to it in other words, when we read the book of Revelation in its most natural, literal, historical, grammatical sense, there's a chronology to the book of Revelation. And so in this chart that I've got in front of you, it's a very simple chart. There are seven seals of the book of Revelation, and we can see reading from uh, left to right, there's the white horse for seal one, there's the red horse for seal two, there's a black horse for seal three, and then there's a pale horse for seal four. We call these the four horses of the apocalypse or something to that effect. And then in the fifth seal, we have the souls crying out, the souls under the altar crying out for vengeance from God to avenge their blood. This is the what we might call the great martyrdom on planet Earth at that time, the fifth seal. And then moving from left to right, we have these earthquake sun in the uh, earthquake on the Earth, sun, moon, and stars losing their brilliance. Right, these what we might call the cosmic disturbances in seal six. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The final one is silence in heaven. Shh. Right? You see the guy with his finger uh, saying, shh, let's be quiet. So these are the seven seals of the book of Revelation. Well, how do they correspond with the book of Daniel? Let's go back to our question and answer. How do we know the first seals of Revelation 6 are within the 70th week of Daniel? Well, according to my understanding of the timing of these events, when we place these events into Daniel's final 70th week of years, which is still future, the seven seals look like this. And this is according to, again, a premillennial pre-wrath model. So let's bring in one more chart. This time, we've got the 70th week of Daniel in this particular chart. This is in, in agreement with a premillennial pre-wrath. And notice we've got the full seven years indicated by a green slice that says seven years there. And then underneath that, it's broken down into the three and a half years and the three and a half years at the beginning and at the end. So look at the very bottom of the chart. We've got the first seal, which is Antichrist. The second seal, which is World War. Remember the, the horses, right? We had the white horse at the very beginning. That's Antichrist. And then the second seal, which was the red horse, is World War. The third seal, which was the black horse, is famine. And then the fourth seal, which was the kind of the pale horse, kind of an eggshell white or something that effect, uh, pale horse, is mass death. And then we got the midpoint. So this is a kind of a rough chronology, according to my understanding of not just the 70th week of Daniel, but eventually we'll see how this fits in with the book of Revelation. 
um, in more detail. And then continuing going from left to right, in other words, chronologically moving forward, the fifth seal where we have the, the people uh, under the altar crying out to God, that's the martyred dead who are now uh, asking God to avenge their deaths. And then we get to the sixth seal, which was the cosmic disturbances in the sun, the moon, and the stars, the earthquakes on earth, and things like that. But primarily, it's the signs in the sky. And then notice this chart doesn't have the seventh seal, which is basically, well, I mean, it does, but it's up above. The seventh seal, which was the shh, silence in heaven, which begins the initiation of, according to this chart, the trumpets plus the bowls. Basically, kind of giving you a little bit of sneak preview as we're drawing the study to a close tonight. We'll pick this up next week with some more questions. Basically, as far as I can ascertain, of the seven seals that are broken in the book of Revelation, the uh, seventh seal itself contains or signifies the beginning of the seven trumpets, which will be sounded. And then when we get to the seventh trumpet itself, it actually signals the beginning of the seven bowls. So in that perspective, we could say that the all of the bowls are contained, the seven bowls are contained within the seventh trumpet. And all the trumpets are contained within the seventh seal itself. Something to that effect. But it still plays itself out chronologically. Look at the top of the chart. At the beginning of this last seven years, according to my understanding as a pre-mill, pre-trib, Antichrist makes a covenant or he strengthens a covenant. Again, the language can go either way. It, it, I wouldn't be surprised if it's he makes his own brand new covenant with his own proprietary language, his own wording that suits his agendas. Could be that he creates and drafts his, uh, a covenant that's not on the books. But I wouldn't be surprised if he simply just reuses one that's already available. Um, so he makes a covenant very early on, and that signifies the beginning of the seventieth year, the seventieth week in in earnest, or in 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 um uh what we could say in in uh specific right we might not know that it begins until after the until we get into the three-year period but then retroactively we're like wow this has been going on for three and a half years in other words when the abomination of desolation takes place which yeshua highlighted and i'm saying this in closing so it must be something that's not secret remember the disciples ask him what are going to be the signs of the end of the age and your return and yeshua gives them all of these beginnings of birth pangs the seals one through four etc but then yeshua switches his language to indicate that there's going to be this midpoint event that should really grab your attention because when we get to the book of Luke, we're going to find out that that at that same midpoint that Jerusalem is going to find herself surrounded by her armies. In fact, I believe Antichrist will already have his armies parked there in Jerusalem uh, as a sign of saying, hey, we're here to protect you. But in reality, it's just going to turn the guns, swing them 180 degrees and point them at Jerusalem instead of away from Israel towards Israel's enemies, right? But it'd be be easy if Antichrist was already occupying Jerusalem peacefully for the first three and a half years until he finally takes his mask off and just turns the guns towards Israel and begins his his uh, persecution of Israel and, and destroying Jerusalem, et cetera, et cetera. So Antichrist makes a covenant. So we might not know when the covenant starts, right? That might be kind of secretive or whatever, but we can definitely say, I believe with certainty, when, when, the, when the midpoint event takes place. I, I, that's my understanding. I could be wrong, but the fact that Yeshua highlighted it and brought it to the disciples' attention, uh, the, and the fact that we have a forerunner in Antiochus Epiphanes, which we're going to look at in time, 
uh, where he desecrated the temple, and that's a momentous event. The fact that we have all of that information and perspective leads me to the impression that this is not something that will be secretive. So the abomination of desolation is right there in the middle. And then looking at the top of the chart and in closing, we have the coming of the Son of Man, date unknown, meaning sometime after the Great Tribulation starts, but before the seven year ends, before the final three and a half years, we have the coming of the Son of Man, meaning the rapture takes place where God allows Yeshua to snatch away the church from planet Earth to protect her from completely being wiped out. In fact, Yeshua describes it some somewhere along the lines of that, unless those days were shortened, there would no flesh be saved, right? I don't think he's shortening the three and a half years or the seven years. I think what in context, what he's talking about, unless the days of persecution, the days of tribulation are shortened. And then... Uh, final on the very top of the chart. So we have the coming of the Son of Man, which is the rapture. And then we have Jesus' reign in Jerusalem beginning at the far end, the far right of the chart where the that yellow arrow is pointing off to the right. So don't get confused the second coming of Christ with the rapture of the saints. Don't get those two events confused. This, the rapture of the saints is Yeshua uh, gathering us and collecting us and we, we get snatched away and we go up. But the uh, second, re- the the second coming of Messiah is where we come back down. Uh, the saints go up, and the wrath comes down. <laughs> right. So, we'll talk about these in more detail. Uh, we have some more questions and answers. We'll continue to look um, at this uh, question here about how do we know that the first seals of Revelation six are within the seventh week of Daniel, and uh, we'll we'll continue looking at this question. But that'll do it now for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunvalda Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, 
take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ari Ben Lyman Hanavi. We're looking at BiblicalUnitarian.com's website, which is a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we've been discussing the passage out of the book of Psalm, chapter 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, will last forever from their perspective. So let's read the passage out of the NIV as they have it posted to their website. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom, out of the NIV. Notice on the um, screen that their verse, their explanation of the verse is quoted, they remind us that it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 8. And so their explanation is found there. And so indeed, let's turn to their explanation and just remind ourselves what the non-Trinitarian perspective on this verse is. And then I'm going to try and finish this tonight. If I don't, it'll it'll only go into one more week. But I think we're getting the idea from a non-Trinitarian, from a non-Unitarian perspective of why I believe that this verse is best understood as referring to Yeshua and his deity. But here's what they have to say. They make a case that the translation of the wording, the translation of the verse where it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, that translation is found in most standard English translations and most Trinitarian-sounding Christian translations is not the best translation. They say it's an option. it is an optional translation, but they opt for a translation that reads something like, your throne is God forever, that first clause about your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Instead of using what we're, we've come to know as the vocative, where we, we address someone directly, they opt for what's known as the nominative, which is possible. Your throne is God forever, meaning, and this is their explanation, this is their website, biblicalunitarian.com. This means that God is the authority, the throne of the king, and the king reigns with the authority of God. This king, and by extension the Messiah, the true king of Israel, has been specially anointed by God. So their perspective is that the psalmist, as well as the writer to the book of Hebrews, was not declaring Jesus as God when he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Instead, if we say your throne is God forever, we're simply saying your, your authority is from God, that God has granted you, and therefore that's why you are a righteous king, etc., etc. So let's remind ourselves what the passages say in Hebrew and in Greek and begin to uh, look once more at some of the structural analysis, uh, finishing up the verse translations. We dead-ended last week at the Jehovah's Witnesses, where we'll pick up again. But first, I want to read the English, then the Hebrew, then the Greek. So, this is NASB in front of you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The, the phrase, O God, is what is known as vocative, V-O-C-A-T-I-V-E. I'll show a, a little chart on the screen here that explains the difference between vocative and nominative in a moment. But I'm just making you aware that your translator is going to display his bias to the original Hebrew or Greek based on the way he understands the context of any given passage 
and the message that's trying to be conveyed by the original writer, which we're going to find out in, uh, in the end, if we can get to it tonight, the final authority is really what God gave to the biblical writer at the time and the context of the way they were being shown the revelation of whatever it is they were to write. It really doesn't matter so much what we later translators of the Bible have to say. In the end, God's word is authoritative in the sense that what God gave to the original writer and the context that was driving what they saw is what should be the final say. You'd be surprised how much translators wiggle there around that. But your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So there are two parts to this verse that are of interest to us from the original languages. One is the clause, O God. What does that look like in the Hebrew and the Greek? And then lastly, notice that this particular translation in the out of the NSB says, a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We're going to find that there are other translations that don't say your kingdom. There are other translations that say his kingdom, which changes the perspective of who is the writer addressing, right? If you're, you're addressing God, then we would say the scepter of your kingdom, first person. Your, your, you, O God, the kingdom of you, right? O God. But if it says the scepter of his kingdom, but we just got through addressing God, that doesn't sound a little bit odd. Sounds like we suddenly jump into third person. All right, let, let me show you the Hebrew just real quick. The Hebrew says, Kisacha Elohim Olam the Ed, the first clause, Kisacha, the throne of you or your throne, Elohim, God. Olam ve'ed, forever and ever. I, and the is, the verb, is supplied by context. Kisach Elohim olam ve'ed, that's the first clause. And notice the very first word over here is kisacha is the Hebrew construct of a noun plus the suffix indicating the genitive of possession, the throne of you, or we smooth it out in English by saying your. So your throne not his throne that would be a different word oh a different for, uh, way to be expressed in hebrew but notice the verse continues by saying shevet mishor shevet malchutecha and so over here at the very end of the verse in hebrew malchutecha is the same construction noun plus the personal pronoun indicating the genitive of the kingdom of you or we smooth it out by saying your kingdom. If it said Malchuto instead of Malchutecha, then it would be the kingdom of his, or we smooth it out by saying his kingdom. But notice it doesn't say um, Shevet Malchuto. It says Shevet Malchutecha. What does that mean? It means the kingdom of you, or we smooth it out by saying your kingdom, the one that he possesses. Okay, so that's the Hebrew. Let's look at Hebrews as it's taken this verse out of the book of Psalms and rendered it. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. And in the context, we're jumping into context, but notice that the writer to the book of Hebrews signals who he's referring to by saying, but of the Son. It's the contrast between speaking of the angels and of the Son. If we were to back up a verse, we would say, and of the angels, he says in verse 7, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And then contrast, but of the Son, he says, and the he 
is God, God the Father. Speaking of the angels in verse 7, and now speaking of the Son, the writer to the book of Hebrews says, but of the Son, he says, and then we have our quote from the book of Psalms. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of, and we have his kingdom again, right? Notice in um, earlier, let me book, pull it up, uh, the scepter of your kingdom. Notice a slight difference. In the same Bible translation, NASB, in the, from the Hebrew, we had the scepter of your kingdom from the Hebrew of Malchutecha. And now in the Greek or the uh, book of Hebrews, we have the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Why does it say his kingdom? We still have the your throne, O God, right? The vocative there. Let's look at the Greek and see if we can glean any uh, details from there. The Greek says, pros deton huion. That's but of the sun. Now we have our clause, ha thronasu ha theos. Ace ton iona to ionas kai. Let me pause. Let me pause between the, the clauses. First clause, pros deton huion. But of the sun, he says. And then we have our quote from starting the book of uh, Psalms, starting right there. The throne of you, Hathas, O God. Ace is Tan Iona, the ages of the ages. Iona to Ionas. That's the first basic clause. The throne of you, O God, is forever and ever, or is from the ages to the ages. We could render it that way. The Ionas uh, literally ages or something that affect. We just rendered it as from forever, from forever to forever, or is forever and ever. Like it said in the in the uh, the the Hebrew, Olam uh, Ve'ed, uh, but Hathronasu, the throne of you. This particular Greek word, right? Let's see if I can highlight it. There we go. That particular Greek word, Hathronasu, the throne of you. So your throne, Hatheos. The next uh, phrase there in the Greek, Hathronos, Hatheos. I'm sorry, O God, or the God, or just God. It shows up as evocative in the lexiconic dictionaries that we pull up. But in its most normative sense, like in the translation from the Septuagint, which we'll see here in a moment, it's not, it doesn't have to be evocative. It's just a standard nominative, just a standard noun, right? It can be rendered as the God, or we take out the word the and just render it as God. So your throne, God. But it continues. Eistan Iona to Ionas Kai Hechabdas Tes Yuthu Tetas Chabdas Tes Basilea Su. And this final phrase down at the bottom, let me highlight it for you. Tes Basilea Su, the kingdom of you, or we smooth it out in our translations as your kingdom. Notice this corresponds with the English of, of um his kingdom, the 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 kingdom of him, I should have said your kingdom, the kingdom of him, takes Basilea Su, the kingdom that is his, um, the scepter of his kingdom. Now, this is in contrast to some other translations, which we're going to see here in a moment, that say your kingdom instead of his kingdom. It seems like it changes the person. All right, so I don't want to get too deep into um, uh, that portion of the Greek right just yet. Let's keep looking at the um, structural analysis. Uh, well, you know what? Now is a good time to look into the Greek. I, I apologize. I, I actually do want to look at the Greek right now. Let me blow that up just a little bit more for us. I think maybe that should be good. Look at these renderings from the Greek. Let's just highlight using these two versions. The NES 27 and UBS 
uh, UBS4 variants has this final clause and it shows it using in using variant form. Taste Basileus out to slash Sue. Why would we have two different options for the final wording? Just so you know, I'll show this to you in the um, Byzantine majority text. As you know, there's there's three really important manuscript families that are out there, of which two are the maybe what we might call the primary, and a third one, which is one that we can all we also need to be aware of, but it isn't one of the primaries. It's more of a minority just because of how many manuscripts have survived time. And the manuscripts I'm talking about from age, from the oldest going up to the more current of the three, are the um, Sinaiticus, which is symbolized by the letter Aleph in the Hebrew. So, that's, so Sinaiticus is one of the older manuscripts. And to that, so that's um, uh, 4th century. Along with that, we also have uh, what's known as the um, Vaticanus, which is signified by the letter B, uh, the, 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 the symbol that's given to these particular codices. So symbol B, I believe, is Vaticanus. And then that's also 4th century. And then along with that, I'm sorry, um, Alexandrinus. And then Vaticanus is symbolized by the letter A. Uh, uh, let's try it one more time. I'm going to put a little graphic on the screen so that um, I'm not getting confused. So we have Sinaiticus, then we have uh, Alexandrinus, and then we have Vaticanus. I believe that's the order in which they show up from oldest to newest. But uh, germane to our study is that when you have a modern Bible translation such as KJV or NASB or ESV or whatever version you have, they pull from these manuscripts. And if there's a variant in the manuscript, that's going to cause your translator to use a different word when he translates it into English. So there's the um, uh, a translation that pulls from a manuscript that reads, Teis Basileia Su. And then there's the uh, translation, let me go up earlier, that reads from a manuscript that says, Teis Basileia Autu. And the difference that, that impacts us, let me scroll to the bottom of this particular tool. The impact is that NASB using one of the older manuscripts ends up with scepter of his kingdom, but KJV using one of the newer transcripts says scepter of your kingdom or thy kingdom, the kingdom of his. The uh, the Teis Basileus Su is the thy kingdom and the Teis Basileus Autu is the his kingdom, the, the kingdom of him. And I mentioned last week a little bit that this is kind of a minor difference, but in the end, we're going to find that it can have really a big significance, a big, a big discussion and impact on the, on whether or not the writer to the book of Hebrews is addressing the son or whether he's addressing God. Because notice in the NAB, NAS, NASB, it says, but of the son, he says, your throne, God is forever. Sounds like he's talking to the son, but then he says the scepter, the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. It, it connects the, uh, the son, the he, the third person, the your throne to um, the scepter of of his kingdom. Seems like we're talking about um, the son. I'm sorry, it sounds like he, it's, they're talking to the son, but the opponents might say that it's actually talking to God himself. Comparatively, when we look at the KJV, but of the son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is a scepter of thy kingdom. It sounds like we're still addressing the son when we use two thys in the quote, thy throne and thy kingdom is the point I'm trying to make. And the original Hebrew was your and your. So the original Hebrew doesn't have your and his, like the writer to the book of Hebrews pulls from the NESB. In other words, it doesn't say, it doesn't use the word out too. The original gr Greek from the Septuagint, which we're going to definitely have to look at. In fact, let's do it right now. 
find my Septuagint rendering. Apologize, my links changed over the uh, in the middle of the week. The Septuagint reference that I was used to referencing suddenly died and disappeared. So I don't know what happened. The website went belly up or something. But so I'm going to use a different tool. We have the uh, Septuagint of Psalm 45:6, which is the rendering of the Greek translation into Hebrew from the Hebrew translation into Greek in the 200 years before Yeshua showed up on the scene. And notice it says, Hathronas su hatheas eistan iona tu ionas chabdas yuthu tetas he chabdas tes basileas su. It doesn't say tes basileas autu. So this means the Septuagint rendering recognized that it was the kingdom of you, not the kingdom of him which is kind of interesting. The original Hebrew had, um, we, may, we could say your, the kingdom of you or your kingdom. So it, that, that's, that seems to correspond. NESB here, uh, the king, uh, we can see them side by side. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. As up, a, scepter of rightness, a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Comparatively, KJV, a throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of thy kingdom or or the kingdom of you, the the scepter of your kingdom, and, and uh, the scepter of the kingdom of you. Uh, I keep swapping it back around for for a reason there. So um, it sounds like a minor ch difference to most of us, but we're going to find later on that proponents to the Trinitarian view make a big deal out of this. So um, let's look at uh, other non what we might call non Trinitarian versions uh, real quick. We already looked at the REV Bible, where it talks about how that your throne is God forever and ever, right? This translation right there. This is a translation that was utilized by the biblical Unitarian uh, crowd. And then when they come to Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 8, they once again have, uh, but of the Son it says your throne is God forever. So they remove what we call the vocative. Let's turn into another translation by the... Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, which we know are a non-Trinitarian outfit. In the book of Psalm, they translate verse, um, sorry, they translate verse 6 here as, oops, didn't mean to highlight that. They translate it as, God is your throne forever and ever. Notice their translation is nearly identical to the biblical Unitarian, for good reason. They're going to opt for a translation that does not look like the vocative, because the vocative is the one that says, oh God. And if the writer to the book of Hebrews is addressing the Son, then it sounds too suspiciously like the writer to the book of Hebrews is saying that God is calling the Son God. But of the Son, he says, he the Father, O God, right? Your kingdom of God is forever and ever, etc., etc. So the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to say, no, we don't believe Jesus is God. Therefore, we're going to opt for not the vocative, but the nominative. God is your throne forever and ever. What do they say uh, about the uh, book of Hebrews? Same thing. Let's bring up their translation for the book of Hebrews. Here we have it. But about the Son, he says, quote, God is your throne forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. So again, they're removing what's known as the vocative. I'm not hanging all of my Trinitarian theology on the vocative, but I'm simply highlighting it for you, as I mentioned last week, because of the way that non-Trinitarian groups usually use that as their first point of attack. And just to be sure, notice they have the, um, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have the interlinear version from the book of Hebrews. And when I scroll down to verse 8, uh, but of the sun or toward but the sun, pros de ton huion, 
the throne of you, Hathronosu, the throne of you, the God into the age of the age, and the staff of the right, straightness staff of the kingdom of him. They at least help us out by showing us that the Ao too is the of him, which tells me which manuscript they're pulling from. And also notice they simply say the throne of you, the throne of you. Um, they don't tell us whether or not this is God's throne or the son's throne who is receives his authority from God. They kind of leave it ambiguous, but just thought I'd show you what their uh, 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 interlinear translation. Let's jump to a non-Trinitarian translation from a Jewish perspective. Again, why am I highlighting the vocative versus the nominative? It's because when a non-Trinitarian interpreter encounters this passage in the book of Psalms, or the book of Hebrews, if you're Christian, one of the first things they go for is opting for the non-vocative. Because if they say vocative, then they have to explain why the translation is, oh God. Why is the writer to the book of Psalms addressing the earthly king as God? Why? What? What? what how can we make sense of the Elohim? Let's begin to look at the Hebrew perspective. Remember, the book of Psalms is translated by Jewish people, but they don't care about the book of Hebrews. So we don't have to look at that. There is no book of Hebrews from a rabbinic perspective. There's only the book of Psalms. And what do they say? Thy throne given of God is forever and ever. Thy throne given of God. Why didn't they say your throne, O God? Why? Because that's the vocative. It sounds too Trinitarian. sounds too Christian. Let's get rid of the vocative. Let's instead, and remember the original Hebrew doesn't really have a vocative in this passage. We talked about that last week as well. Thy throne given of God is forever. So this is almost like a paraphrastic. They're, they're inserting words that aren't really there, given of God. The word, the word given there isn't there. Thy throne given of God, kisacha Elohim, your throne, Elohim, literally, the throne of you, Elohim. But they insert a noun, I'm sorry, verb, given of God, is forever and ever. Translating the Olam Ve'ed. A scepter of equity is the scepter of thy kingdom, Malchutecha, the kingdom of you or your kingdom the scepter of thy which is the kingdom of you your kingdom so that's the jps translation the 100 year old 1917 jps translation there is a modern version of the translation that shows up um here more of a modern and is that it nope that's not it there is a more modern translation here let's look at safaria.org they have of verse seven here you can see it in the middle of your screen your divine throne is if i click on it it'll it'll do something strange to my screen so i'm not going to click on it but your divine throne is everlasting your royal scepter is a scepter of equity so this is more of a modern jps 1985 so they've cleaned up the language a little bit right they don't have the thys and thous and these and stuff anymore but notice they also shy away from evocative sounding first clause your divine throne is everlasting the word divine throne filling in for where it has the word elohim kisacha elohim notice also that when we're working our way through judaic resources that are non-christian leaning that we also have to contend with other than jps translations here's one from the chabad.org outfit that uh translates right here um there we are, verse 7. Your throne, O judge, will, uh, will exist forever and ever. The scepter of equity is the scepter of your kingdom. Again, non-vocative. Instead of saying your throne, O God, and a staying, instead of saying 
uh, the throne that is given of you or the throne given of God or something else, they say, oh, judge. Now, why would they say, oh, judge? It's because the word Elohim in the Hebrew can be rendered as judge within context or magistrate. It doesn't always have to refer to God. We already know that judge like like rashi these are rashi's comments here in the tan section your throne will judge your throne will prince and judge shall exist forever and ever as the matter that is stated exodus 7 1 quote i have made you a judge elohim over pharaoh right god speaking to moses and why because a scepter of equity is the scepter of your kingdom that your judgments are true and you are fit to govern so rashi influencing this particular translation I'm not saying Rashi made this translation that Chabad is using, but Rashi's comments, which are in the hand part there below the translation, explain that, well, the word Elohim doesn't even have to be God, whether it's God in heaven or God below who the writer of the book of Hebrews might be calling, referring to Jesus. It doesn't have to be either one of those. Elohim can simply be judged. So your throne or judge will exist forever and ever. Why would the the throne of the judge exists forever because it's given of God because it's the it's the scepter of equity and the scepter of your kingdom. So there's another perspective that we have to deal with. Let's look at another fascinating perspective from the Targum. Now, what's the Targum? The Targum is the ancient Aramaic translation that was in use by the Jewish people who lived in the land of Israel, but it had come so closely out of the exile from the uh, from Babylon, remember we talked about this in Daniel's study, they came out of exile from Babylon and they had lost a lot of their Hebrew understanding as a mother tongue. So instead, Aramaic was the lingua franca, as it were, of the first century that was popularly spoke. And so when the Torah scrolls and the Tanakh were read in public settings in the first century, often they were read in Hebrew, but they were quickly followed up by an Aramaic paraphrase a translation from the Hebrew into Aramaic, which is a sister tongue of Hebrew. It's similar to Hebrew, but it's not exactly the same. Some of the words change around. So the Targum has been preserved for us. There are several different Targums, about half a dozen different uh, renderings from the Aramaic into it, what we might call from the Hebrew into Aramaic. And this is one of those Targums. I can't remember which one it is, but... When we scroll down to Psalm chapter 45, and we start in verse 3, notice the, the Targumist starts by saying, Your beauty, O King Messiah, is greater than the sons of men. The spirit of prophecy has been placed on your lips because of this the Lord has blessed you forever. And then verse 4, 5, and 6 which are relevant to our study in seven. Gird your sword on high, O champion, speaking of this Messiah figure. Your glory and your brilliance is to kill kings as well as rulers. Verse five, and your brilliance is great. Therefore, you will succeed in mounting the horse of the kingdom by reason of faithfulness and truth and humility and righteousness. And the Lord will teach you to do fearful things with your right hand. Verse six, your arrows are drawn to kill Gentile hordes. Beneath you, they will fall and the sons of your bow will be released into the heart of the enemies of the king. Now look at verse seven. The throne of your glory, O Lord, lasts forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is an upright scepter. Because of you, verse 8, you loved righteousness, because you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Because of this, the Lord your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your fellows. So in the Targum in verse 7, it says, The throne of your glory, O Lord, lasts forever. But notice, Instead of making this psalm 
entirely about an earthly king like David or Solomon or someone else in the Davidic line of kings, like biblical Unitarian does, like much of rabbinic Judaism likes to purport, like the Jehovah's Witnesses like to talk about. Instead of focusing our attention on the earthly king, notice when we jump back up to verse 3, that the Targumists say, your beauty, O King Messiah. Now, does this mean they're talking about Jesus? Nope, nope, and nope. They're not talking about Jesus here. But they are saying that this passage can be understood as being messianic. Now, we have to remind ourselves that in pre-Jesus Judaism, in other words, the Judaism that was earlier than the first century, uh, Judaisms that preceded the first century, there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about messianic expectation, who would be the Messiah, who's going to hit the scene and be the Messiah, et cetera, et cetera. But that's why we it's important for us to look at these other than Christian perspectives. And we'll see that if I can get this in time, if my time permits, we'll see that eventually we're going to read the translate the uh, commentaries from a uh, Christian perspective that recognize that some great rabbinic sages speculated that this person in being spoken of in this particular psalm chapter 45 is an earthly king yes but it points forward to a greater king namely king messiah now again does that mean they believe they were referring to jesus no no and no but the reason why this is important for our study is because it means that not all of the perspectives at least from the, the national israel side of the house not all the perspectives were saying that this is just a mere earthly king, because King Messiah is he, he is an earthly king, but he's more than near an earthly king. He's the the consummate earthly king. He's the greatest earthly king that would eventually rule over Israel. So, in conclusion, as we're drawing our study to conclude to a, a close, um, I realize I'm not going to finish this tonight because I've got more resources. Let me just at least. Uh, show you from the technical perspective the why I've been highlighting the vocative, what it means to say one uh, the rendering is vocative versus nominative. If we look at the use of Elohim in Psalm 45, verse 6, I've just pulled this chart from the internet. We have over on the left side of the chart, Elohim as vocative, meaning vocative means supplying to the person, addressed to the a, per, a specific person. The rendering would be your throne, O God, or your throne, God. We don't have to have the word O there, make it sound so archaic. We can simply say your throne, God, and it still is what we might render as vocative. That's the form of address, that particular case of noun or pronoun or um, uh, uh, adjective. So uh, nouns, pronouns, and adjectives in Greek, as well as Latin and uh other languages, I think German as well. Hebrew doesn't have this particular distinction as as carefully uh, uh, shown and demonstrated, but Greek does. So, vocative noun or vocative pronoun or vocative adjective. Um, your throne God or your throne or God. I humorously mentioned a few times that you know, if if my wife were addressing me to tell me to go do my chores or whatever, then she would use the vocative. Hey Ariel, you need to go do this, do that. But if we have Elohim as predicate, then it would be your throne is God. Predicate is a part of the sentence that, that doesn't indicate vocative. It's not a, the person being addressed. Subject, predicate, object, right? So predicate would be the object. Your throne is God. So here the word Elohim uh, is the subject of the sentence, The uh, or I'm sorry, the object of the sentence, the subject being thrown there, kisacha in the Hebrew and um 
uh, thronos in the Greek. Your throne is God. So this would be Elohim, the word for God in the English. The Hebrew would have it as a predicate here, predicate instead of or uh, instead of the vocative. But if applying to God, um, when we're talking about the use of Elohim, Elohim as subject, we can swap that around. Instead of being the predicate, being the object, we can make it the subject. God is your throne. So notice, first we have your throne is God, and then we just reverse it. God is your throne. We still have the, the verb in the middle there, the is, but we just simply swap the two nouns around. Your throne is God, or God is your throne. So Elohim can either be predicate, meaning at the end of the sentence, or it can be at the beginning of the sentence as the subject. God is your throne. Elohim is your throne when we're talking about being applied to God. So these are just three different ways that we could look at the, at the verse. And the Greek allows for all of those renderings, whether it's the vocative or just the simple nominative, nominative being the word for noun, nominative either in the predicate sense or nominative as the subject, nominative the noun, uh, Elohim either being at the end of the sentence as the uh, object or being at the beginning of the sentence as a subject as God. So either way, um, uh, the Greek can go one of those ways and, and the translators have to make their choice. And in closing, let me just show you again, in case you're confused by these terms, predicate and, and uh, nominative and vocative. The predicate is the part of a sentence or clause that tells us what the subject does or is. So in this example, we got the exam was difficult. The subject is the exam, that's at the beginning of the sentence, the subject, like the word Elohim in our sentence earlier. And then we have the verb was between the two nouns. And then the final noun, or in this case, it's, a, it's, it's like an adjective, was difficult, the predicate. So we have subject at the beginning of the sentence and predicate at the ending of the sentence. So it's the part of the sentence that tells us what the subject does or is. In this case, the exam was or is difficult. Your throne is God, is the translator's option that he can use when he's looking at patronos, su, uh, etc., etc. The second example, notice, is, we have, the man from the shop knows my secret. Subject of the sentence, the subject clause, the man from the shop, and the predicate clause, uh, indicating by the beginning verb, knows my secret. And so when we compare that to uh, earlier, your throne, O God, your throne, O God, in the vocative, strips away the verb, just your throne, O God. But if we put it into a nominative, where we have the predicate at the ending, then your throne is God. We have to stick in a verb there. And that gives us the verbal clause there, the predicate clause at the very end, is God. Otherwise, when we have the uh, Elohim as a subject, when we're talking about God, we have God is your throne. Again, the verb is stuck there in the middle between the two nouns, God and throne. So just some different options. Another um, a way to look at the predicate noun, just to remind us, Mr. Smith is a doctor. Predicate noun. Notice this isn't vocative. This is the uh, predicate understanding of the way sentences work. Mr. Smith being the subject at the very beginning of the sentence, the linking verb is the is stuck between the two nouns. And then the predicate noun at the very end is a doctor. At the beginning of the sentence and at the end of the sentence is a noun. We have Mr. Smith and we have doctor. They're both nouns, right? God and throne, like in our in our verse. They're both nouns, Elohim and Thronos, or Elohim, uh, Theos and Thronos in the Greek, or Elohim and uh, Kis, Kisa in the, uh, the, the Hebrew. Uh, they're both nouns, but the difference between our translation is driven by, do we see this sentence as a nominative, 
or in other words, noun type sentence with, with a verb kind of stuck in the middle, or do we see it as a vocative where your throne is God, your throne, oh God, I'm sorry, vocative. So this is just, again, another example of predicate. So we're going to, here's what I'm going to do uh, starting next week. Um, I'm going to turn now, we've already looked at all of, as we're drawing our study to a closing conclusion and summary, we've already looked at all of the structural analysis. We've looked at somewhat exhaustively of, uh, at every translation that is really relevant to the discussion. Christian translations, both Trinitarian and non-Trinitarian, and Jewish translations, obviously all non-Trinitarian. And we looked at Jehovah's Witnesses translations, right? We're not, we, we don't care to look at any, go any further than that, but just that gives us kind of an idea of what we're dealing with. We also looked at the possibilities between the different Greek manuscripts, right? Uh, the throne of you, the throne of him, um, et cetera, et cetera, and how that impacts our, our understanding of the passage. And then we also looked at the Septuagint renderings. We looked at the uh, Aramaic translation from the original Hebrew going over into Aramaic. Uh, and we looked at differing um, ways in which the Christian translations can opt for either the vocative or the nominative. So that's that's what we call structural analysis. All of that is behind us now. That's all the kind of the technical stuff. And my final push for the Trinitarian perspective, starting next week, um, we'll look at, let me pull up this, we'll look at um, a, 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 a commentary from a Trinitarian-leaning website by the name of CARM, right? It's a Christian Apologetics and Research Ministries its Trinitarian perspective. After that, we'll look at a another perspective from a Trinitarian-leaning website, uh, key, to the, key to the Trinity. And then, oops, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Let me back up. I apologize. There is actually a translation. Let me, let me, you know what, let me take a little bit of time and show you this one. I apologize. I should have shown you this earlier. My book note, bookmarks got the better of me. Uh, let me scroll up. Here we go. Look at this particular website. This is this is just a blog post from a non-Trinitarian perspective. And they highlight the idea that there's a very important manuscript variant reading of verse 8 from the Hebrew, the book of Hebrews into Greek. A manuscript variant of the of the verse of, from Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, the two older. Remember I was, I was struggling earlier? There's three significant manuscripts in view at any given time two of which are the main and the one of which is a kind of a bit of a minor, but it's still there. There's in this order, if, I, if I'm reading them right, there's Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus is indicated by the uh, symbol Aleph in the Hebrew. And then there's Vaticanus, which is, if I remember, is the letter B. And then there's Alexandrinus, which is the letter A. And I believe that is the order they go in it. But anyway, the two older are the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. This is represented by the NASB, which reads his kingdom instead of your kingdom. If this is the correct manuscript reading, it would mean that the writer was quoting a version of the Septuagint with this reading. So it shouldn't. So should it read your kingdom or his kingdom? Remember the very ending of the verse with his kingdom with um, Autu versus uh, your kingdom with Su, right? So Tes Basileus Autu or Tes Basileus Su. Which one is it? This particular non-Trinitarian resource tells us that this is very significant since the throne in question in this verse is the throne of the kingdom, God's kingly throne. They continue. It appears that the best manuscript evidence may favor his kingdom, i.e. Um, uh, Tes Basileus 
uh, Tespas Aleas Autu, his kingdom, which grammatically can be taken to refer to the Father's kingdom, the kingdom of him, his kingdom, rather than uh, the kingdom of you, the, your kingdom, the Tespas Aleas Su. Uh, you guys following along with me? Uh, in, in case you're not, let me just show you those two one more time. All right, so let me highlight both of these for you. In one rendering from a Greek manuscript, from a Greek manuscript, Tes Basileus Su, the uh, the kingdom of you or your kingdom, and then below that, Tes Basileus Autu, the kingdom of him, his kingdom. So notice if there are two, here's why this, this uh, other web resource is making this important for us. If there are two people in question, which all along that is kind of the case, right? Is it God's kingdom or is it the Messiah's kingdom? Is God being the one addressed when we say, oh God, or is it, is it the father who's, oh God, or is it the son who's, oh God, right? Really, that's, that's at stake here. And so this is important for us. If the writer to the book of Hebrews is using a manuscript, which talks about the kingdom of you, and he just earlier said, but of the Son, your kingdom, then the kingdom of you is the Messiah's kingdom, per se, right? The addressee, it would be uh, Messiah, who the writer of the book of Hebrews just addressed as, O God, your throne, O God, the kingdom of you, Tes Basileus, Su. But, according to the non-Trinitarian model, if the authority being spoken of is God's authority, and the kingdom being spoken of is God's kingdom, the kingdom of Him, not the Messiah, but the kingdom of him in heaven, the Father, Tespasileus out to the kingdom of him, then the Hothronosu, the kingdom, uh, his kingdom is God. And so it changes the your perspective of the Hothronosu, uh, your kingdom. Is the your Messiah your or is the your God, the Father your? That's what really what's at stake. So I hope you guys are understanding the the important the important um, distinction being made between these two. So now let's go back to this uh, particular resource, non-Trinitarian, by the way. So they say, if his kingdom is the correct reading, right, the older of the manuscripts is the his kingdom. Now, whether or not the older is the more correct, you would think by default that the older should be the correct, right? It's the one that came first, but sometimes it's the older simply by date, but it may have been, may represent already a, a copyist's, change a, a, an alteration in the in the text that that happened very early meaning the writer to the book of hebrews may have really said your kingdom but a copyist changed it to his kingdom and by way of age the oldest one that survived first is the his king is the uh his kingdom instead of the your kingdom right something like that effect hope you guys aren't confused so if the his kingdom is the correct reading then it's even more clear that the first instance of hothaos in verse 8 refers to god the father and the vocative translation oh god is not correct so this is why it's important from this blog post perspective this is just one of many of their arguments but this is one of their final arguments which i thought was worth bringing up because it does add part to the discussion and if you're one of those who says well that's just the nail in the coffin that's that's that really is the final word because it's the oldest of the translations it says his kingdom and his would be referring to god the father not jesus the human king etc etc so that settles matter for me that's why we bring this to uh our our into the discussion and they talk about that his, that this fact has also been acknowledged by Trinitarian academics. The pronoun his would be referring back to the Father in the phrase, the throne of you, Hothaos, which means this phrase refers to the Father's kingly throne, which the risen Jesus sat down upon in order to rule God the Father's throne. 
So again, the, they uh, show you this. Uh, but concerning the throne, the, concerning the sun, your throne, Hothalus, is the age of the age. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. Notice it says that second person, the throne of you, but third person, his kingdom. So that's where we get some oddities. The older of the translations is the uh, switch from the second person to the third person. That's how it reads in the oldest of the Greek. The newer of the Greek renderings simply switch everything over into the second, the throne of you and the kingdom of you. That's why the translations out of the KJV read the way they do thy thy kingdom or your the the uh, um uh, the kingdom of 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 you instead of the kingdom of him. That's why they do what they do there. But just be aware uh, that the original Hebrew, which is actually the oldest again the oldest of the Hebrews that we have available to us, including the Septuagint, uh, are um you and you instead of you and his something like that. But this web blog says that this strongly indicates that his does not refer to the son, but to the father. That being the case, the antecedent to his would be Hotheos, the father, the God, the God of Jesus, the God of all. But concern, And so here's how they render it in closing. We'll leave off here tonight. But concerning the son, your throne, God the father, is the age of the age. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of his, God the father's, kingdom. And that's why they make that particular distinction. And... um. Uh, I'll leave off there. Next week, what I'll do is I'll finalize by showing you these last resources from a Trinitarian-leaning uh, resources. We got Karm here. We have another resource, another blog, Truth and Tidings. We have, um, this is Tim Higgs' commentary on Hebrews chapter 8, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. And then lastly, we'll uh, pull a commentary from Dr. Michael o. Brown, who's obviously a Trinitarian Messianic Jew. And then that will um, finish up all of our look at this particular verse. And I will finish this next week. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. I'll bless your name. And what a fascinating study it is to embark upon looking through all of the prophecies in the book of Daniel, how they pertain to our understanding of the book of Revelation and events that are likely to be unfolding very, very soon in our day and age. Thank you, Lord, for informing us in advance about what we can look look forward to, not just in terms of the, the, the trouble that's around the corner. I mean, who's looking forward to trouble? But we're looking forward to the deliverance that you are going to um, grant us, that you're going to um, execute on our behalf, the punishment against wicked, the judgment against the evil world systems, and the ushering in of your righteous kingdom. And likewise, this particular uh, apologetic study on Trinitarian matters, is Jesus very God or is he simply a human being? Lord, we believe that you are very deity. You are very God veiled in flesh. You are the second person of the Trinity. You are fully God, truly God, and yet you are fully man. You are truly man. You're truly human. We can't understand how that paradox can come together, how this, this can be true. And yet, because of the language that the Bible has left for us, the authoritative word, even in its various different ways of translations and interpretations, nevertheless, your truth is not lost to the translator and not lost to the interpreter. It's not uh, confused in all of the gobbledygook and, and all of the, the, the muddying up of, of different perspectives. Lord, I believe by faith that the Spirit reveals that if we simply allow the Word of God to speak for itself in its entirety and authoritatively speak into our lives, that we are left to wrestle with this mystery, this paradox, this tension created by the text that 
the Messiah that we read about is truly human, and yet at the same time, he's truly God. And so I worship you as Son of God and Son of Man, even if I can't fully grasp it and articulate it. But thank you, Lord, for this time of counting the Omer from Pesach to Pentecost. Continue to help us to have the proper perspective as, as we go forward, looking um, with anticipation to um, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the giving of the Torah at uh, Shavuot uh, coming up very, very soon. And we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Oh,